Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Welcome to this new episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Hope everyone is doing well during these hot and smoky summer days we're in the middle of right now. So today's conversation is actually uh, another throwback. Uh, We've been doing a few of these lately. Uh, It's one I recorded back in January of 2019 with Sean Grace. And Sean lives in New Mexico and is a big-time backcountry elk hunter, and he actually does some guiding down there. Uh, and he had just moved down not too long before we we spoke a couple of years ago from Wisconsin. And actually, a big part of the focus of our conversation today actually isn't about elk hunting, but it's about his his background, how he grew up, and what he has done professionally. And so a little bit about that, you know, he grew up in Rice Lake, Wisconsin. His dad was a power lifter. His mom was a dietitian. Um, His dad did power lifting. I don't think that was his career, but uh, it was something he was very much into. And as a result of that, they got very fascinated back years ago with nutrient-dense red meat and figuring that out. And that ultimately resulted in them getting a couple bison on their ranch, and the rest is history, as they say. They they now have one of the premier uh, bison ranches around. Uh, it's called North Star Bison, and what they do is rotational grazing to mimic nature's movement, um, and by having grass-fed Uh, a grass-fed process from start to finish and then doing a field harvest where they're actually shooting the animals out in the field as they're in the middle of their daily routine just like they've been doing every day is a pretty fascinating thing and and I think you know, as Sean talks about in here, that is something that they're very proud of about um their ethical raising, uh, killing, and and slaughter of these amazing beasts, which are the the American bison, and so you know, while it's not a lot of conversation about hunting today, it's a conversation about uh, ethically taking an animal and uh, having it become food. And that's why it's really fascinating. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Sean Grace. So uh, thanks for joining me today, Sean. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. So um, just did a little intro explaining who you are, but um, tell me a little bit about North Star Bison. Yeah, we're a uh, vertically integrated um, family-owned company, and vert- vertical integration, in simpler terms, is just that we we own the animal, uh, we own the entire process, you know. So we own the animal, um, we harvest our animals, bison in particular, um, and then we have a processing facility where we maximize um, those animals to our fullest extent, pack them up in boxes when people order the meat online, and we ship it across the country. 
So people are ordering up specific cuts. Are they ordering larger portions? What what are they What are they ordering? Yeah, we sell anything from uh, whole animals all the way down to a la carte, one pound and smaller packages. But one pound is kind of your standard size. But cool. And then uh, I think it's okay to say you're you're also a provider of uh, of the meat for Epic Bar, correct? Yeah. Yep. Correct. Yep. Bison. Bison trim meat. Okay. Cool. Correct for their bison bacon cranberry bars yeah it's a it's a great product it tastes it tastes great yeah um okay so north star is a family-owned family-owned business you grew up with it and so take me back to what when did when did your family start raising bison and and have that as part of the, as, of the business or was it always there yeah um so even i guess prior to um my my parents purchasing their first bison back in October of 94. Um, I was in second grade, and uh, that was kind of the introduction. But prior to that, um, my dad had, uh, I guess, back in high school, going way back, uh, he had aspirations, goals of, of, he was intrigued with fitness and the human body and its capabilities through proper nutrition and uh, training reg- regiments and so forth. And so, um, he became, uh, heavily involved with, um, powerlifting in particular and training and so on and so forth. And so that was, he owned a couple, uh, gyms back then they're called health clubs. And, um, and so my mom was a registered dietitian had, uh, moved into Rice Lake, uh, Wisconsin, uh, back in the day when she graduated from college and started her practice there. And, uh, she went into the gym one day to, to sign up and uh, to in, in her new town and, and met my dad and that was kind of the end of that. He didn't notice her apparently the first time she walked in. He was <laughs> very narrow focused and uh, had an upcoming meet and anyway, but she noticed him and so that was kind of the beginning of that. But so that was the genesis of um, kind of the, the health movement and so out of that um, there were. Um, Sales leaders in a company, Shackley. Um, oh yeah, I remember Shackley. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And so they were um, they were heavily on the the product development side for athletes, and they just um, after my dad's um, career had um, he he eventually did set an American record in the deadlift, um, drug free, and so that wow. was his, that was his thing was adamant that it was all natural. And, um, so out of that, but through those years of training and coaching professional athletes and people that were just coming out of, or out of college, trying to make it into the pros or people that had been in the professional realm for a while and just trying to stay on top and compete with the younger generation coming up and hold their position, they just had this huge void of, of quality red meat. Mm -hmm. And, um, they they always say you can only eat so much chicken in your life. (laughs) And, uh, so bison just fit the mold for exactly what they were looking for, for their clients, yeah. uh, people that they were training. Um, and, uh, so they so decided, well, I, well, and, and I should say that too, that the other dream that my dad had was the, uh, the athletic dream of powerlifting. And then, um, um, he was just always intrigued with bison and thought it'd be cool to own one someday. Did either of them grow up uh, on a farm or a ranch or have that in their background? Yeah, yeah. So my dad grew up on a dairy farm, so he never farm again. Okay. Um, and uh, my mom grew up on a hog farm in southern Minnesota. And uh, same thing, swore she'd never farm again. But it was this bison Destiny dream was be, yeah. very different. And 
like I say, in 94 is when they ended up pulling the trigger and it was just going to be a hobby. So they bought two animals and then um, they eventually that, that uh, first animal or the first calf um, had a baby and, mm-hmm. and then that was at the time when it was ready for slaughter. They were, um, they had plenty of people asking about that uh, high quality meat. So. So I was down in uh, southwest Minnesota this last fall for the governor's pheasant opener and took a tour of Blue Mound State Park. Okay. And uh, so I got to see the bison herd there. Right. And they talked about, you know, selling some of the animals and how they how they manage it. So have have you gotten animals or did that by any chance come from, yeah. from there? Ironically, that is the location where our first two animals came wow. from. Blue, yeah, wow. Blue Mound State Park in and that is Minnesota. And that is the, as I understand it, what the biologist was telling me there who gave the tour, she said it is the most genetically pure form of bison in America is, yeah. is out of there. Okay. So we can, we can get off on a rabbit trail. I just wrote a blog about this. That'll be coming out here in a couple of months. Um, but the, the Yellowstone herd that's has become uh, popularized as genetically pure and kind of this sacred herd. Yeah. Um, is actually about 50% uh, ranch raised bison. So the original 50 animals, there was a, approximately 50 animals, 25 or so left of the wild herd. And then um, the government decided, hey, let's, uh, let's foster this herd and make yeah. sure that it's, um, that it doesn't you know, die off like the rest of them. Um, anyway, they, they purchased about that many bison from local bison ranches okay, and then introduced them and, and blended the them. Okay. And so this whole, um, and those were supposedly, so anyway, there's just a, a huge genetic rabbit trail right. that we can go down. Right, right. Um, so d- does nowadays, uh, how, how does, how does a herd get managed at North Star? And, and like, you've got, and I don't know if it's appropriate, can, can you share, like, how many animals do you have? Is that something that's public knowledge or something you'd rather not say? I don't know if that's a sensitive issue, yeah, but... No, no, that's, um, we've, yeah, we started out with two, okay. and um, where we fluctuate between 1,000 and 2,000 head okay. uh, throughout the year, so calving season and, and harvest, and, you know, it's kind of a... And are you, at, at this point then, is the herd self-sustaining in terms of, or you're, you're still, I'm presuming you're still having to bring in new animals, is that is that correct? Correct. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yep. So we raise as many as we can, uh, birth as many as we can, and then through um, a lot of networking connections, and, um, and we have a, a raising protocol, and so any animals that we buy from the outside have to be raised as the, you know, as to the North Star standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can purchase those animals and bring them in, and then we end up finishing those animals for our meat production, because we can't possibly raise um, enough ourselves, or burn right. enough ourselves on, right. our, on our acres, and still be able to finish those animals for, um, for market, so. And from a fish, finishing standpoint, grass, grain... Yeah, yeah. So we're 100 percent grass fed. Okay. Um, and the um, the thought process behind that was always, and that's the way we that's the way we started out with our um, our our meat animals was as nature intended it to be is how and and whatever that shaped out to be that's what that's what we're going to do. Yeah. And so uh, we've recently, well, in the last five to ten years, slowly expanded our product line as consumers asked, "Hey, we love your bison. I want to get more." products from you, you know, that are, you know, so-called North Star approved. And so and as nature intended uh, model has spilled over into all these other species. And so we have a lot of like our <clears throat> chicken and turkey, for example, is, um, is raised corn free and soy free, which is unheard of, you know, so it's just 
pasture and whatever they can find out there with some supplemental uh, natural cereal grains that okay. are more prevalent, you know, on a prairie situation. Yeah. So, Okay, so what is the, I'm sure you get these questions all the time, what's the difference between typical beef, red meat, and, and bison? The major difference um, would be the nutri- the the nutritional den- density of of the uh, the meat. So if you if you think about uh, take just looking out the window here, seeing trees, you know, so you have a, a basswood tree or a or an aspen tree. Yeah, that's growing extremely quickly. Um, it's not it's not dense um, as compared to an oak tree or something like you know white oak that grows extremely slow. Um, the the density of that wood uh, is much different than an aspen or a, or a pine or something sure. like that. Um, beef are essentially a pine, and bison are an oak. Hmm. They take uh, their their bones are nine times harder than beef, um, and their nutritional density of every ounce of meat is basically equivalent to that. And so, and they have uh, higher like omega three. Fats. Yeah. yeah, and so that's essentially all everything that you're going to find, the good properties of grass-fed beef, mm-hmm. convert that into grass-fed bison, and then just everything is just prolifically better better because of uh, the, the density and the, um, the compounding effects, you know, and every, every ounce is going to be um, a healthier bite of a protein. So you don't need to eat as much. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to get filled up faster with, uh, with a bison steak as compared to a, a beef steak. But um, yeah, the, the the fats are definitely healthier. Are, are there very are there variances th- looking at like you know um, what other operations might do, et cetera? What is the north star differentiation? Sounds like you you're very much hold to to those natural aspects of both in the feeding and the process, and and do some like as an example, do some some. Um, companies actually are they finishing them with with corn or other things does, does that happen yeah yeah and uh, there's still approximately I, I guess i don't know a, a generalization would be probably 85 to 90 percent of the bison meat that's available on the market um is going to be grain finished um, okay grain fed at some point in its life so we're definitely even in the bison world um we're definitely um a rare commodity, so to speak. Yeah. So a niche within a niche. So take me through life cycle of an animal uh, on on your farm operation, all the way down to, I think it's, I've seen a little bit of this before in terms of, of the end of life and what what is that process and how does North Star do that? Yeah. Um, out of our, our, uh, our respect and... Um, I guess just respect for the animal um, and desire to feed them as we feel that nature is intended to or that they're created to be. Um, we leave these animals, I mean, as low stress as possible, of course, um, throughout their entire life. Um, but they're, if they're not born there, they're, uh, they're brought in from a, a, another ranch. Um, and then they're put together as a kind of a cell or a group of like-aged animals, and they're constantly... Uh, rotated throughout the summer um, based on forage quantity, forage type, uh, seasonality, um, all these different factors that play into a rotational grazing plan, which is mimicking uh, nature's 
migration routes and things like that and um, and speed and all these things you're, you're constantly referring back to what was nature's model prior to man being here how did bison interact with the land or animals in general so that's our that's our model um and we're constantly even throughout the winter months we're still moving these animals onto new ground hmm. and uh so you're, you're spreading out fertilizer which minimizes we don't have you know a fertilizer spreader or anything like that mm-hmm. that that goes out we don't um break up the chips there's a lot of uh, the bison dung you know there's a lot of um, microbial activity and and bug life and things like that that happen that break it down extremely quickly um, and feed the forage so so during the winter months are you are you bringing out your br- presumably there's not enough natural uh, f- forage there that you're bringing right. out and, right. and, and providing yep. that yep. yeah so it's all dry hay that's gotcha. you know, baled and we don't use any um, any kind of acid or anything like that to cure the hay there's a lot of um, you know products like that as is seems like everywhere there's a preservative for something sure and so that's kind of the natural uh, path that people go down and everything is just sun-dried and cured and then we um, shrink wrap basically um, all the bales and it uh, it voids that that forage of oxygen and just preserves it are you baling that most uh, a lot of that off of your own land or are you yes. bringing that oh yep. you are yep. okay so all of our all of our forages are we make all of our own forages okay yep. okay control that Huh. Yep. Yep. So those get fed out uh, back onto the land um, in the winter months after the snow stacked up a little bit, then yep, we're able to refeed that forage. So. So how often are you um, harvesting the animals? Are you killing them? And is that is that a regular process? Part of the process? It is. Yeah. And so we're yeah. yeah so weekly. Um, okay. We're we're harvesting. Um, Again, we're following kind of nature's fattening cycle. So their animals naturally fatten in September through December. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of their peak uh, body condition. And when the animals mature out, that's that's just the natural time that uh, you know that the that the animals should be harvested. So that's the that's the window that we stay within. It's the best eating experience. It's the best. Um, it's just the best all around uh, from every angle. And so that's. The, the window that we have our peak harvest in and then we have a few uh, a few animals that might be a little younger it's all based on body condition body score hmm. um, that we're able to analyze these animals and then select them when they're ready for harvest how do you analyze are, are you out checking them and you're you have like I don't know yeah we have a body score so okay. on the ranch there's um, the ranch hands and those that are with the animals every single day they have a you know, a few different factors that they're able to score that animal's condition based on. Yeah. And then basically designate it. Yeah. That it's, and those are signs that it's fully mature, that it's, it, it might not be the biggest animal, mm-hmm. but it's, it's matured out and its body is, um, is fattening essentially. Yeah. And putting energy into, um, into that, um, category as compared to, uh, bone ossification or, you know, skeletal structure or, um, muscle structure. And you're you're taking these animals um, out in the field, right? Correct. Yep. Which is is that done a lot of times, or is that some again something that's that's a bit unique for for your operation? Yeah, that is um, a point of of pride for us. Um, and I always preface this with not that we're proud to be proud to be killing animals or harvesting animals. We don't you know we don't take pride in that, but. Um, if it must be done, which we believe it must be, 
in order to, to eat good red meat protein. Um, it has to be done humanely. It has to be done with dignity and respect and all those things that I talked about earlier. And so every um, every Thursday is our is our selected day that uh, we go out and harvest these animals. And so it's uh, we aim for the brain for an instant instant kill. And um, yeah, it's it's a uh, we had a, a humane uh, animal welfare. Um, inspector actually come out or auditor yeah. uh, come out and uh, witnessed one of our field harvests and just made the comment at the end of it that she couldn't imagine a more peaceful process and uh, that was at first she was very very hesitant because she had witnessed a few of these that were uh, attempted you know, yeah. to be an on-farm on kill and it wasn't yeah. very humane um, and so we take a lot of precautions and we're really serious about that process and making sure that it's um, that it's you know, respect is, or dignity, honor is all maintained yeah. throughout that process. And you didn't, it wasn't, uh, what's her name? Was it uh, a grand uh, woman? I forget her name. Anyways, there's a woman, there's a, that's oh, uh, Temple Grandin. Temple Grandin, yes. that's who I was trying no, to think no, of. No, yeah. it was not Temple okay. Grandin. No, okay. no we've, yeah, she's a, um, yeah, she's an authority in that. Yeah, absolutely. That yeah. That's really cool to hear. I mean, and, and I think I've seen, um, seen some different things relative to how you do that. And, and, and as, um, as hunters, you and I both as, as hunters to me and, and the importance of that aspect of, of something that's close to a, a natural type of environment of where taking the animal. And, and like you said, in a, in a humane way, I think is, is, is important. And I think is really fascinating about, about the business and, and like you say, minimizing that stress, which is what any hunter hopes for is a quick, clean kill. And uh, knowing that, um, not only is it important for the respect of the animal, but from the, the output of what you're eating, you know, I think there can be an argument made absolutely. that says you can taste it, right? Yeah. It's, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We have that comment often and I'm not sure, um, well, I don't know how scientifically based it is, but there is a night and day difference when when people will. I, you, you can do a, a blind taste test, and they've yeah. done a few of them. Yeah. And there's something distinctly different about an animal that that is harvested through our field kill, um, zero stress yeah. uh, type system versus sort of the conventional, mm -hmm. um, which is man's what do you want to say? Strong arm, mm -hmm. right. if you will. And they're forcing these animals through a, you know, it, their goal, the means to an end is, is all, um, pure, I guess, if you want to say that they want an instant kill. And mm -hmm. so their mind in, in the, in the federal regu regulators mind, they're thinking, okay, let's restrain this animal as much as possible. So there's no chance of missing. Mm -hmm. Well, everything that you've done, the prior two hours or right. half a day right. completely compromises the fact that you had a one shot kill right. in the end. Right. Right. And so that's, that's what we're trying to, um, we really, really focus on the whole picture. You know, how is this animal getting to that point? Yeah. Are they, are they, are they dying with a, with a blade of grass in their mouth? Or are their eyes bugging out of their head? And, yeah. You know, they're, they're just quivering with, right with fear and stress hormones. 
Well, and, and that's where, you know, like you say, whether it's the hormones or I know with hunting, you talk about lactic acid and, and all kinds of things. It, it, it makes complete sense that, uh, that there could be a tangible, a tangible difference. So did you, um, you grew up on the, on the ranch in Wisconsin, Rice Lake, Wisconsin. Um, did you grow up hunting too? Yes, I did. I, I was a hunter long before I was a rancher. Okay. Okay. And did your, where did you learn to hunt? Is your dad or your mom a hunter or? Yeah, yep, my dad and I have very, very fond memories of uncles and grandpa and, uh, you know, some friends coming over, uh, my parents and, uh, for the eve of the Wisconsin deer rifle opener on the week of Thanksgiving. And I was just going to say your Thanksgiving, uh, opening hunt there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Pumpkin yeah. bars and good food. Um, <laughs> would you, would you base out of the ranch? Years. Would you just stay there and, and then hunt on your own property or? Actually, no, we hunted just, public, oh, public you did? ground. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Over like uh, it. near McKinley, Wisconsin. That's the, the little place that we had. And that we had really good year numbers yeah. uh, in the late nineties when I had first started. I, I was, I guess, four years old. So it would have been the early nineties when I first started with my dad. And this past November was actually the first November that I missed, uh, opening day oh, of man. Wisconsin, opening weekend of Wisconsin. I wasn't, it was, I was guiding hunts, so it wasn't all bad, but it wasn't as, uh, it was a bittersweet moment for sure. I bet. But that's how I grew up. Yeah. We were, uh, dad shot a lot of spikes back in the day. Yeah. And, uh, mostly was, deer or did meat. you do other, other hunting too? Or It was almost exclusively deer. Yep. And then I was <laughs> self-taught and, uh, you know, some other aspects or had, you know, friends or family that would like. Deer, uh, turkey hunting in particular was my so I met my wife was uh, her dad taught me how to turkey hunt and eventually she grew up and <laughs> <laughs> that's great yeah I, I noticed that so it's uh it's so fun to see how the turkey numbers I was just talking with somebody this morning about that in terms of uh you know this last deer season I was actually out for muzzleloader late season muzzleloader and I had about 30 turkeys in the area just uh, coming out yeah. of roost one morning it was so fun to see yeah absolutely yeah so my my father-in-law He's just the, uh, he's the turkey master, but he was, um, he was in La Crosse, Wisconsin when they had released birds, Okay. uh, just outside of La Crosse back in the probably early eighties or something like that. And that's when he first started turkey hunting was, the, I think probably the first season that Wisconsin ever had after the reintroduction of turkeys, he was out there scratching on wood, trying to figure out how to call these things in. So very cool. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. You ever you ever hunt uh, waterfowl or upland or anything like that? Um, I did a little bit of waterfowl. Uh, I never had anybody that was that I could go with that I really got into it. I love it all. I just don't have time for yeah. it all. So <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So you grew up deer hunting, getting a lot of spikes, getting venison, eventually getting bison into your into your system with the with the family business. Um, when was the first time you went uh, elk hunting? Uh, it was actually, I, you know, I was young and married and had a little boy at home and didn't have a lot of money, just had big dreams. And um, a friend of mine uh, had draw, uh, drawn a really special tag in Wyoming, Unit 7, uh, archery tag, and uh, had permission on a, on a really quality ranch out there, private land that was buck, backed up to a whole bunch of public. And... Uh, only ever read about elk hunting and dreamt about it since I was four or five years old. And I just decided to make it happen. And I had a video camera and I was doing some whitetail hunt filming, things like that. And uh, at the time for back Midwest whitetail, 
was on the pro staff with those guys. Okay. And I said, hey, I'm going to jump out there and see if I can't capture an elk hunt on film. Completely naive to how difficult that that would be and how much more challenging the the terrain is to hunt with a camera versus, you know, whitetail hunting set up in a tree stand and wait for them to walk by. But Yeah. at uh, where Where is Unit 7? I don't know where Unit 7 is uh, at. Just south of Casper. Okay. So in that, yeah, there's... Uh, so how did the how did it go? Did uh, any animals come? Did you get close? Uh, we we did actually. Um, it was there was an extreme drought that summer, and about eighty percent of the elk herd had left looking for food, and so we were hunting a very scant, reduced population. Um, and of course, it was ninety five degrees and dusty. I I went through two cameras on that trip. Oh, Mine bit the dust literally, um, and then I had a. The, another one of the, um, the guys that his his wife had a tag, uh, Jeff had a camera, and so I picked that one up and I was able to film a little bit. But it was the evening or afternoon, I think, of day nine that we had an encounter with our first bull. And um, my buddy Shane, that was his, his first experience with an elk and mine. And I I got I have the hunt on YouTube. It's a little it's a little uh, sketchy, but uh, it's it was amazing. I. I didn't know that I could have that much adrenaline running through my body with only a camera in my hands. So it was it was an amazing experience. I Everything I ever I, I I couldn't even you can't even imagine uh, being in that moment with a screaming bull elk coming. So we were just talking the last few days about this with uh, my brothers and group of guys that I grew up with hunting and. We, we've gotten away from doing bigger trips. We used to do, you know, we'd go do goose hunts or, or duck hunts out in Dakota and different things like that. And we still have our traditions with whitetail, but we've talked about doing an out west hunt. And I'm trying to get these guys, get organized, start getting some preference points, et cetera. And, um, and we talked about different, you know, looking at these, you know, as, as, as a big, big event hunt. And we've talked about caribou uh, up in different areas, about moose and about elk and i just said the idea because i still have yet to to get close to an elk and the idea of of a bugling bull i mean just i like you said the amount of adrenaline i can just imagine i yeah. mean it's just there's got to be nothing like it yeah you, know? you lose your mind yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's intense so you did what year was that when you did when you did that first time yeah, that was 2012 2012 um, okay <clears throat> so not that not that long ago no it wasn't and then you got bit by the bug and, yeah. but you just had the camera that time yep and so we actually had a bull come in okay um, screaming and um, ended up misjudging the artist just slightly and hit the bull low and we tracked him for better part of two days trying to find that animal and yeah they're tough yeah and i don't I don't believe he's dead, or he, it wasn't at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, he bled just a little bit and yeah. uh, just ran out of blood and did body search and searched forever yeah. and uh, yeah. just left dejected and conquered feelings. So. And that's those are the stories that need to be shared. They're, it's not anything anyone wants, but it's reality. You know, it's just that that is life. So did you... Um, when was the next time after that did you that you went went hunting and uh and and where was it yep so it was uh idaho uh 2014 uh did an archery hunt do it yourself um i have a public it was yeah yeah, yeah. and just did i probably put in talking to somebody about this the other day 120 hours i think of research and uh that spring and summer and selected an area it was over the counter i had, I just I wanted to have the ultimate experience of 
beating the living crap out of myself. <laughs> and uh, it, it was everything I expected it to be, uh, but so much more rewarding than I, ex- that I in- had anticipated. Did you do it solo, did you say? No. I didn't. You no. didn't? Okay. There was, I, was I guess there was portions of the hunt that I hunted uh, okay. solo, uh, but there was, yeah, a friend of mine from Kansas. I was going to say, I, I, I know of a couple guys that have tried that. That, that to me is, that's... That's pretty crazy trying to do a solo a solo one. I mean, yeah. I can't even can't even imagine. Yeah, you need help. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you can help down. It's it's borderline. Um, I don't want to be judgmental because everybody's got their. Um, I mean, it, it can be done humanely, but if you get an elk down, you have a little bit of time to get a lot of meat. Yeah. In in and and to save that meat and make it and keep it edible yeah. Yeah. and not waste the animal. Yeah. You got to be prepared. Yeah. And in any archery season in the lower 48, you're risking, um, if you don't have two people, you're risking yeah. spoilage. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's irresponsible. I don't yeah. want to judge anybody. Yeah. No, I, 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 I don't disagree with you. I think it's, I think, um, it's a, it's a very fine line you've got yeah. there, you know, a lot of risk. So did you, uh, on that hunt, did, uh, did you see anything? I did, um, hunted my tail off. I logged 167.7 miles in 11 days and uh, oh, sleeping man you three did hours beat yourself up. and uh it was but i on the last I, I i my body couldn't go any longer but mentally i was i was longing to be up there still it was yeah. i mean i literally cried walking off that mountain wow. because it was just such a such an experience you, i mean it literally changed my life wow um that, and, and is that when you when you decided you wanted to stay with us and you wanted to start guiding? It was it was a pivotal moment up until that point. I had I had guided um, or I'd always dreamt of guiding, mm-hmm. and to that up to that point, um, everybody's experience or journey is different. But mine was very um, self centered. I would say very um, selfish, focusing on what. I wanted out of hunting mm-hmm. and how I could fulfill my cup and, you know, what magazine I could get on or what, you know, what pro staff I was on or whose catalog I was in. And that was, that was the focus. And it just felt in, uh, late 2011, I just, actually, I think it was mid 2012, something somewhere in that mm-hmm. range. I just basically had a midlife crisis and I just said, no. I gotta, I gotta stop, and I gotta figure this out. I don't know what it is, but I just don't. It doesn't feel fulfilling. It doesn't feel like I did when I was ten years old, mm-hmm. traipsing behind Dad in the public land of Wisconsin, knee deep snow and ten degrees. You know, it didn't, it didn't have that same purity any longer. What was so? What did you? What was that journey like? That's a, that's a, that's a big journey. What? Yeah, what? I literally put the camera on the shelf, and things were going well, and um, it was. Um, it was soul searching really. I mean, I, I was looking for my purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, what is hunting is, is something that it's, it's my greatest earthly passion. And at that point I just said, you know, Lord do with this what you want. And, uh, I, you know, I, it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta feel right again. It's gotta be pure. I gotta have whatever that looks like. I gotta take a break. And so, you know, I set it on the shelf and, um, that's where that, I started planning that Idaho trip mm-hmm. um, and uh, I didn't have maybe necessarily all the money I needed to be able to do it, but I was going to one way or another. And I sold 
I sold tree stands. I sold, basically sold, liquidated a whole bunch of gear to reallocate into this elk hunt, get some elk hunting gear, and uh, do something that I dreamt about for a long time, and you know something that was different and kind of abandoned the camera, and decided was that, that it, I was going to hunt for, not the purpose of portraying myself in front of anyone else. That it, this is a hunt about me, not in a selfish way, but getting back to the purity of the hunting. That it's me and and the mountains and the elk. Hey listeners, this is Mark, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. I just wanted to let you know that in the coming days, we're going to open up registration for our Upland Bird Hunting course on Hunting Camp Live. And this could be your opportunity to take part in a self-paced online masterclass with support from live interactive webinars and our outdoor mentor community. If this sounds like it might be something for you or maybe a friend who's been thinking about starting to hunt, just go to modcarn.com forward slash Upland Birds to get more information. Now there's a limited class size, so make sure you check it out today so you can reserve your spot. Now back to the podcast. You bring up a really interesting point. I didn't know we'd go here Um, because... You know, with modern carnivore, we use film a lot to tell stories. Um, and I and I've got a, a a blog post started that I've that I've never finished. That's that's along the lines of addressing a little bit about what you're talking about. In that, I love filming. I love telling stories through film, but when it comes to uh, the activity of a hunt, um, we we don't. We, we've got, so far, we've got scenarios where people are out hunting, but we're not showing kill shots, for one thing, as an example. And there are aspects of that on this blog post, what I was going to say, or what I have written in there, is the aspect of the hunt itself, I think people need to put the camera down. When when we see things like, you know, bow-mounted GoPro mounts for, for your bow, et cetera, things like that. To me, the aspect of 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 the hunt and the respect for the animal and for your experience is something very personal and it's not meant to necessarily be shared out there for for reasons whatever they may be ego education what have you there are certain aspects that i i get it again not to judge everybody's everybody's got a different perspective on it but i guess my general personal feeling is that's that's meant to be a a personal thing and and selfishly you should want to to focus on being there in that moment and not just trying to capture the story for later retelling if if you will right um, be present in the moment. Yeah, exactly. And and I think, you know, and, and I often say, you know, it's like, um, you know, pick up the camera after, you know, and, the, and, and or then share that with others and, and relay that. And that that is the true storytelling, uh, the old ancient storytelling, not not actually showing it, but actually having the person talk about it, which is in some respects can be more rich. Yeah than the actual footage, if you will, yeah. of the experience. Right. The climax of the hunt is not necessarily the objective. Right. And I don't know that portraying it as such, it, it's a it's a selfish, twisting molestation of using that animal to um, that animal's life as um, 
you know, a, a selfish means, you know, for us, like this, this kill shot is, uh, it might've been, it might've been the best shot you ever made, mm-hmm. but that's between you and the, that animal that's got, it all of a sudden it becomes, it becomes about you and the shot that you put on the animal mm-hmm. and less about the animal's life and just being an ethical hunter Yeah, and accepting the fact that there are some things that we don't need to use for selfish gain mm-hmm. or, you know, so that's a, that's a, a fine line to walk. And I think there's the, um, there's a lot of people in the hunting industry that are kind of coming around to this notion of, you know, maybe we've gone down a real, an interesting path here the last 10, 15 years with hunting films and so on and so forth, where it's just a, a kill fest and yep. we've kind of lost the, we're coming full circle, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I agree. And I think, and that's uh, something that I'm very, um, I feel good about that. I think things are headed in the right direction. I think there's that, that acknowledgement, not, not everywhere. And I'm sure people, certain people would disagree, but uh, a lot of the people I talk to who, who see that, that um, direction and the importance of heading there. Right. So you and I met maybe a year and a half ago, something like that. And you were at that time uh, telling me that you were going to be moving to New Mexico. So why did you choose New Mexico from Wisconsin? That's a little different. Yeah. I had, uh, again, following chasing dreams of, of, uh, guiding elk hunts since I was four or five years old. I kind of put that dream on the shelf. Um, when I got married and had kids and thought, well, this is something for when the kids are out of the house, you know, maybe I can think about that again. And I got an opportunity. And so it was interesting on that hunt in Idaho in 2014, standing on the mountain thinking, you know, why am I here? What am I, what am I doing? You know, who, whose life am I bettering? What legacy am I leaving uh, with, with my life, you know, this time on earth that I have. And, it was at that moment that I felt a real strong conviction, if you will, um, that, Hey, this is your skills, your, um, your drive for hunting is not for you. It's for someone else. And I, I didn't really know how that would play out. I just knew that, okay, this is, I've always had a passion for even back home here in the, in the whitetail woods, you know, food plots and setting tree stands for other people. And, um, I was enjoyed that aspect very much. Um, but just had this, this drawing to the mountains and, and elk hunting and, and that aspect. And so, um, Idaho was the confirmation of that hunt. And I was full draw three or four different times on bulls and just had wind switch at the wrong time. It, it was just slipping through my fingers and it was, it was painful, you know, to be that close and, go home empty-handed um not necessarily for uh, i mean you want to fill a tag it's the reason that you go anybody that denies you know i'm just out here for the experience well why'd you pay six hundred dollars for a tag you know i mean you can you can do this for free (laughs) if you want an experience (laughs) but it's you know hunting that gets us up early and pushes us till after dark and you see some incredible things that you wouldn't normally see if you're lollygagging you know, bird watching or whatever it might be. Nothing against bird watching, but that's, you know, there's just, there's no timeliness to when you have to be a certain place at a certain time. So anyway, 
we often say going from observer to participant in right. the outdoors. You know, that, that's that's that's, that's, the, that's the total. That's the total. Um, what do you want to say? Um, difference. Yeah, I guess put it simply mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Uh, is that aspect right there. So anyway, um, so that was September, late September, two thousand fourteen. And uh, a month later, I get a call from my brother-in-law, recent brother-in-law, just uh, married my sister and said, hey, we just uh, we just got this ranch back and we need guides. And um, we had already scheduled my dad and I were headed out there to cow, cow elk hunt, northern New Mexico, the Vermejo Park Ranch, big, uh, beautiful place. And um, so we ended up switching our hunt from Vermejo Park to the V7 Ranch. And uh, that was my first, well... So I elk hunted twice that year, and I was able to shoot a nice cow elk, and my dad too. And but the, the elk numbers there are just phenomenal. Yeah. And uh, that was an opportunity that in 2015, my wife and I went down and with our boys, and stayed at their house and at the lodge, and she cooked meals, and uh, the boys played around, and um, yeah, we stayed down for, down there for five weeks, got elk hunts, and um, that was at the end of that experience. I thought. You know, if, if I just went through five weeks straight of elk hunting and still want to hunt elk, <laughs> probably worse the last day than I did the first, I think I think I could probably handle this. And that was my biggest fear was burning out on on, right. on hunting and just being my greatest passion. I didn't I didn't want to risk that, and so yeah. I was kind of always pushing pushing further. And I realized I can probably hunt every day of the year and and not feel burned out. Yeah. So, so you. Um... You live down there now, you, you and your wife and Correct. your kids. Yep. So we moved there in July. Yeah, so six, eight months ago, we have we purchased a home and, and lived there in northern New Mexico, um, guiding elk hunts, yes, sir. So you split your time. You still work for North Star Bison, and then you're doing doing the guiding. How did your, uh, how'd your, how's your hunts gone as of late? Good, good. It's, uh, compared to Idaho, it's probably cheating i mean it's the the elk <laughs> numbers the new mexico is a special place the way yeah. they manage their elk population is unlike any other state what is um, like what what is the difference what what do they do do you think from a management well standpoint? as a as a not they they give out so few tags okay i mean public land is like as good as any private land probably mm. or most private land in, 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 in any other state hmm. um there's just so few hunters and the the age quality, the age structure of the herd is mm-hmm. is phenomenal. Hmm. Um, satellite, I mean, there's some satellite bulls that'll make your eyes bug out um, down there, and herd bulls that are just huge. Mm-hmm. And there's just so many elk, and the quality is phenomenal. And so, what kind of terrain are you hunting in, and and what kind of uh, temps, etc.? Like, what yeah, describe it's, it? For it's me. really mild. Um, I mean, you're at lunch, you're in a t-shirt or a long sleeve, light long sleeve. And then in the mornings, of course, it's mountain, you know, higher elevations. We're at 6,500 to 8,500 feet is pretty much the elevations that we're hunting. But, um, so it's cool in the morning and cool Mm -hmm. in the evening, but it warms up nicely during the day. And you're, I mean, it's 70 degrees, 75 degrees during the day and, and then down towards 30 to 40 at night. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just really comfortable, but it's rolling, uh, rolling hills, foothills, getting into the Rockies and, um, it's a lot of open country, Mm -hmm. uh, but some rugged stuff and it's just a a nice blend and you're able to literally hunt from a pickup, um, drive to your location and get out in the dark and start walking in and, and, uh, find elk. Hmm. So it's, and you can be back at the lodge for lunch. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, 
Yeah. Are you doing uh, rifle and, and archery or? Yep. Okay. Yep. I didn't, uh, I wasn't able to get in on any, on any archery hunts this year okay. um, down there just due to moving and the transition time and still being responsible for a lot of content and things like that for North Star. I just didn't, there was a transition period there where I wasn't able to take advantage of much for, um, through September. Um, but yeah, I did a bunch of rifle hunts this year and, um, yeah, we ended up the, the first afternoon, um, my client had taken a 403 and five eighths gross giant that, uh, was just a phenomenal experience. I didn't, um, didn't expect that we'd be shooting a 400 inch bull this year, but it's, it, wow. it's unreal. So he found him a few days before the season and he ended up sticking around and uh, staying with that herd and were able to get him. Um, but that was, that was by far the largest bull I've ever seen on the, on wow. the roof. So wow. Pretty yeah. amazing. That's, that's great. Mm -hmm. So are you, um, what are your plans for the, the upcoming year? Are you going to do any personal hunts or are you doing mostly, mostly guiding? Yeah, we're back. Um, uh, I have a cousin in Kansas, um, that, uh, he's never been elk hunting before and we've kind of reconnected here as of the last few years. And, um, I actually came out and filmed a hunt, uh, this year at V7, uh, and, uh, we had a great time. So we're planning to go back to Idaho and, try to even the score here okay. in September. So excited about that. Yeah, and a few other things, um, cooking. I go to Kansas and whitetail hunt mm -hmm. um, over that just after Thanksgiving and hoping to be able to come back and hit the opening weekend of Wisconsin rifle season more for tra tradition's sake than, than killing a big buck. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so enjoy time with my boys. Hopefully only have that one-year gap on the uh, Wisconsin yeah. whitetail. Yeah, I don't want to make that mistake too yeah. many times. Yeah. That's, I think that's just so um, so valuable, you know, to the to the experience of uh, that hunting camp and the, yeah. the tradition and the camaraderie that comes with that. And, totally. Um, to be able to hunt with family and just the, the anticipation, the excitement for a young developing hunter is... Yeah, that's really critical, I think, for their just their development and, and the memories that are made from that. No, absolutely. It's for, for me and my family, it's the same thing, you know, the, the hunting camp. And just had uh, pushed out a podcast a few weeks ago with uh, the former DNR commissioner from Minnesota. And that was one of our main things we were oh, talking sure. about was the culture of, of, of deer camp. Yeah. Which is uh, pretty big here yeah. in Minnesota and Wisconsin. It is. Yeah. And it's, and it's unique, I feel like. There's, you know, there's... Uh, hunting camp is different everywhere you go, yeah. but it's it's got its it's definitely got its own flavor in the. That's in the what North he Woods. was he was saying too, because he said you know all the people he's you know he's he's only hunted whitetails in Minnesota, but you know given that he's connected to all these other commissioners around the country, he said it, it there's something that is unique about it here that's different yeah. different from elsewhere. Absolutely, and even our deer camp and um, got some friends you know that i hunt with and we're basically all family and really close friends uh, in kansas western kansas that we hunt and it's fun it's just it just isn't it's just different. it doesn't have the same feel it's it's different um not that i would trade it for anything but it's it's just very different yeah we're, for, we're fortunate in that aspect for whitetail camp for you do you guys have a are you at somebody's house or are you at a, a structure a shack or a tent or what um, I don't, well, I've entertained the wall tent, yeah. you know, I think that for personally, that would be phenomenal to be right. able to do the wall tent and the, 
but for an eight-year-old, I don't, I don't know that yeah, that's necessarily right. the foot I want to start off on. So we're <laughs> just going to stick up. with the, yeah, just at the ranch. Yeah, at the my dad's yeah. out there on the ranch. And yeah, it's it's that fine table. line. You, you you don't want to put too much of your of your uh, desire on that front cause, and right. make it tough and then yeah. turn them off, right? Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. I get that's it, that same yeah, thing. Definitely. Um, no, that's great. Do you have one last question? Do you um. What's down in Mexico? Is there with with the elk herd, et cetera? Is there um, is there any CWD risk down there? Are you hearing of, or is it not? Not they're really? taking precautions. Yeah, um, I mean it's unlawful to transport the spinal cord or brain material across. You know, so they're across state lines. So they're mm-hmm. encouraging that everyone use local tax service and those sorts of things. And and as a um, as a sportsman, Randy Newberg had a, a really phenomenal podcast um, earlier this fall with some biologists talking about CWD. And, and as sportsmen, I think you know this glass that I'm drinking out of. You know, just the the responsibility that us as as sportsmen have to take for the outcome of of our of our heritage and our and our traditions and what we value and what we think is really critical and important. And we just I just had a conversation earlier. Um, with someone this morning about how she's an inner city girl and she loves everything about it. Went vegan for eight years because of the thought of eating just, it hit her one day that she was eating muscle, you know, and she just couldn't wrap her mind around the fact that she's eating muscle, you know, and like she has muscles in her body and she's eating something, someone else's muscles, (laughs) animals' muscles, but um, through health deterioration, hair was falling out, nails were breaking off and just recognized that she was severely lacking a large, important part of her diet. So she started incorporating, but she was very cognizant about where her, what she was supporting, where her protein was coming from. And, um, and so I don't remember where I was. Oh yeah. As far as, far as responsible sportsmen, um, you know, we, we can make that connection, um, and, and we can understand it, but until we communicate it and help bridge the gap to help, um, you know, there's, you know, like I say, this, 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 crevasse is widening as the city grows bigger the less connection people have with the land and understanding what it actually what it means and uh, and who we are and the right place that it you know that it sits within us yeah no absolutely you know that's what we're often trying to address and 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 look at it how do we how do we keep people connected because you know i think you and i both agree it's it's critically important and and i think people crave it and I, I find i find people who are uh disconnected and don't have that connection have just there's an innate natural interest that built sort of into our dna to be connected yeah in a, in an honest way right and that i think that's the my personal um what do you want to say mission or, you know, the, my, my heartbeat behind North star, our, our family company is bridging this gap between people who, who want to eat meat as it was intended by nature, but to be able to buy it, you know, um, there's only so many tags. There's only, you know, and even as a sportsman, we don't, we rarely fill all our tags and right. there's a lot of times you go home empty handed, you know, there's, what is it? 10 or 11% of, of all the elk hunters are successful. So there's mm. 89% of the population out there that <laughs> has got an empty freezer when they, when they leave and, um, when they head home. So that's kind of the, um, I think the, you know, the void that we can fill, uh, or that my, I'm 
passionate about and excited about feeling for people is that you can purchase this meat. You can't purchase wild game, yeah. but you can purchase this meat and it was raised in, you know, in an honorable nature intended fashion. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. So where can, um, where can people go to learn more about North star and, uh, work is it work? How can they purchase? Yeah. We have a website. Okay. So it's, we ship right to people's door. What's the, what's the URL uh, Northstarbison.com. Northstarbison.com. Yeah, I don't intend to make this a, <laughs> a big old advertisement for our company, <laughs> but it's, it's something that we're, you know, we're passionate about. No, and, I, and I think it's, it's helpful for people to know, you know, the, the backstory because there's a lot of, a lot of things in the meat world or the food world yeah. in, in general that if, if people knew, um, it absolutely would, uh, and boggle their mind so no abs- absolutely there's a lot of challenges out there but i think what you guys are doing is great and uh, and i love seeing it and it's been fun to talk to you about uh about your your uh your your hunting journey and yeah. uh those those big things that are important so yeah. absolutely thanks so yeah. much sean yeah thank you very much for having me this is this is awesome we'll do it again soon yeah that sounds great Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.